Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 51. This week, we're going to work our way through several small books, starting with 2 Thessalonians and hopefully finishing through the book of Hebrews. Now, 2 Thessalonians was written shortly after 1 Thessalonians, still dealing with topics that were discussed in the first book. Paul wanted to continue to encourage these believers in their time of persecution, as well as correct some doctrinal error that had been misleading them. So in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, Paul thanked God for the spiritual growth that these believers were experiencing, encouraging them to persevere during their trials, and assuring them of his prayers for them. Paul desperately wanted these believers to persevere rather than experience apostasy from their faith. Therefore, he reminded them them that persevering through trials are necessary if they want their faith to develop and mature. Now in chapter 2 we find that Paul's earlier teaching in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 about the rapture was being called into question by these false teachers. The Thessalonians seemed to be following these false teachers who taught that the day of the Lord was already here. And by this reasoning, these believers had missed the rapture of the church. However, Paul hits this doctrinal error straight on with some biblical truth. And he says that the day of the Lord which starts with the tribulation period, cannot happen until three events happen first. Those three events are the arrival of apostasy, meaning there will be a massive departure from the true faith in those days, chapter 2, verse 3. Second, the appearance of the Antichrist, also in chapter 2, verse 3. And third, the removal of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Now, the Holy Spirit... Uh, accomplishes his ministry of restraining uh, satanic lawlessness in the world, mainly through our influence, the influence of Christians in whom he dwells, especially through the gospel proclamation. So at the rapture, the Holy Spirit's restraint of evil through Christians will end as he removes them from the earth. God, the Holy Spirit, will not entirely abandon the earth, of course, but his ministry of holding back evil through Christians will end. Now, the last part of chapter 2, Paul once again gives thanks for these believers and encourages them to be faithful to the Lord while they look forward to their future. And in chapter 3, Paul asks these believers to continue to pray for the advancement of the gospel. He also warned them about being idle, which was a problem that had arisen from their mistaken concern, um, mistaken idea concerning the Lord's return. The teaching that Christ could return at any moment, I guess, had led some of these believers to be idle. They had quit their jobs and were, I guess, simply waiting for Christ to come. When people are not busy with their own work, they tend to meddle in the business of others. They needed to abandon their lifestyle and get back to work. Paul concludes their epistle or this epistle with a focus on unity to motivate his readers to work out their problems and restore peaceful conditions that would glorify God. That's all for 2 Thessalonians. Now on to 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. These three books are often called the pastoral epistles because they are about, well, pastoral matters. And Paul writes these books to two pastors, Timothy and Titus. Of course, these are men that we've already come into contact with and are men that are heavily involved in Paul's ongoing ministry. So 1 Timothy was written by Paul to assist Timothy with his oversight of the church. At the time of writing, Timothy was the the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Some of what Paul writes in 1 Timothy was for Timothy's personal benefit, but most of what it was was a guide to Timothy for his work of ministry in the local church. So in chapter 1, Paul opens with a word to Timothy about correcting false teachers in the Ephesian church. Uh, they were minoring on, or excuse me, they were majoring on minor matters in their teaching. Now, the ultimate goal of a Bible teacher should be not to generate debate, but to cultivate the lives of his students so that they may manifest love in their daily living. You know, the law cannot save a person, neither can the creative teachings of these false teachers. And Paul is a powerful example of one who tried to use the law to save. The antidote for false teaching is the teaching of sound doctrine. The more a person knows sound doctrine, the easier it is for them to distinguish false doctrine. 
Chapter 1 has basic instructions for Timothy. Now chapters 2 and 3 are for the benefit of the church body. First, Paul exhorts and instructs regarding prayer in the church. Typically, men are to take the lead here, but Corinthians tells us that women led occasionally in early church meetings, 1 Corinthians 11, 5-16. Second, Paul mentions some additional thoughts about women in the church. Works that express a woman's godly character should be what is noticed more than how they dress. Spiritual qualities should always mark a Christian lady, but Paul's concern was that they... His concern was that they be outstanding in church meetings. Now, you know, what about leadership in the church? Well, if a woman exercised some authority in the church, for example, as the leader of a ministry, uh, and she did it in submission to the male leadership, she's not going to be sitting. And so it is today. What Paul prohibited was a woman taking inappropriate authority on herself. A woman can have authority over others in the church, provided she is under that authority of the male leadership. Now, Paul gave two reasons why women should conduct themselves in church meetings as he has just specified. First, from creation, it was God's intention that the male should lead the female. God made Adam first, and then he made a suitable companion for him and Eve. God made Eve for Adam. He didn't make Adam for Eve. So God created Adam and Eve equals in that they needed and complemented one another, but entrusted Adam with a leadership responsibility over his wife. Second, as part of the judgment on Eve at the fall, God confirmed or made permanent the leadership of the male over the female. Paul cited God's intention for male-female relationships specifically in marriage, not in general social situations. Continuing on with his discussion of life and order in the church, Paul addressed the matter of leadership. And the two offices in the local church, that of elder and deacon, must have, or pastor and deacon, must have qualified men in order that the church will receive godly direction and avoid numerous problems that come with bad or inept leaders. Paul listed the needed qualifications that are related to the present life of a man, not his past life, or no one would qualify. In the list, Paul did not indicate that any one of the qualifications is more significant than the other, although no man will ever leave ever perfectly fulfill all of these, they remain God's standard in evaluating those who would be leaders. Now chapter four addresses the pervasive problem of apostasies. Paul revealed or excuse me, Paul revealed the truth that some who know the truth of God will purposely, knowingly turn away from it called apostasy. Those who defect from the truth then enter into false teaching. Paul reminds Timothy that the truth is always the antidote to error. And furthermore, Timothy was to teach and live the truth. He was to be a godly example and godly discipline is the key to successful service for Christ. Now Paul moves on in chapter 5 to groups in the church. The widows who were not, excuse me, who were a special group in the church, not all will is Widows qualify for church support, but some do. They must also be women who are known for their godliness and their service. Another group in the church are elders. Elders who, are, um, who teach are to be properly appreciated by showing respect and by giving financial support. Another group in the church were slaves. There were a very large number of slaves in the Roman Empire. Slaves are reminded that salvation did not change their social status. They are still slaves and are to respect their masters. Now, in chapter 6, Paul returned to the instructions of false teachers to alert Timothy to their underlying attitude so he could deal with them effectively. Paul gave instructions to those who are wealthy. Uh, These uh, are to look for opportunities to use their material wealth for righteousness' sake. They are not to depend on their money, and they must always remember that wealth brings constant temptation with it. Paul concluded his letter to Timothy by exhorting him to guard the truth of God. It was his sacred responsibility. Now, 2 Timothy continues to deal with the subject of the church, as 1 Timothy did, but here Paul stresses its leadership. This second epistle to Timothy strongly emphasizes the essential qualities that should mark church leaders, in particular, Timothy himself. This is also a very personal letter from Paul to Timothy, filled with lots of emotion. Paul believed that he would die very soon. 
and therefore he stresses what was most important in service of Christ. In chapter 1, Paul content, uh, commends Timothy for his past faithfulness, and he charges him to remain loyal to the faith. He encourages Timothy to be courageous, not allowing others to intimidate him. He also tells him to guard the gospel, which means to protect it. In other words, he was to preach the gospel that Paul passed down to him. To further uh, impress on Timothy the need for him to remain faithful to his calling, Paul cites uh, cited the records and, or excuse me, cited the ministries of other Christians who were mutual acquaintances. Now, in chapter two, Paul becomes more pointed and charged uh, towards Timothy in two specific areas. First, he is in to endure hardship. You know, Paul's long ministry with Timothy had included many hardships, and as Timothy looked forward to training other men, he could expect more of the same. So, Paul urged him to submit to his difficulties as a good soldier or like an athlete, and like a farmer. The qualities of these men are those who he is to entrust the gospel to. Paul further encourages Timothy, saying in essence that he knows exactly what it feels like to suffer hardship. Paul has had his share of them. Also, Jesus has. Christ's faithfulness to us should motivate us to remain faithful to him. Now, the second charge to Timothy is to remain faithful. He was to be faithful in his public ministry as well as in his personal life. He was to run away from the attractive desires that appeal to the young and rather pursue the goals of right behavior, faith in God, love for all people, and peace with others. Chapter 3 of 2 Timothy focuses on some direction that Paul gives concerning the last days. Timothy was aware of the fact that there was an opposition to the gospel, but he needed to realize that this was not a passing situation. It was a permanent condition that would characterize this age. Though Satan stands behind this opposition, men carry it out. The moral conduct of these men reveal that they are not really from God. And the key to understanding them is the expression that's used, um, the, the, the expressions, the four expressions, sorry, that are used to describe love. They love themselves, they love money, they love pleasure, and they do not love God. What Timothy should love, in contrast to these false teachers, is the sufficiency of God's word. All scripture is profitable. Uh, in the last chapter of this book, Paul exhorts Timothy to always be preaching sound doctrine. Although there will be hardship, it will be work. Um, all that work will be rewarded one day by the Lord. Paul was ready to depart this life knowing that he had served the Lord well, and he was encouraging Timothy to be ready as well. Paul concludes Second Timothy by giving greetings from numerous individuals and information about some others. Well, that's all the time we have for Second Timothy. Now it's on to Titus. Now, Titus is mentioned several times in the New Testament and was apparently saved under Paul's ministry, becoming an important assistant to him. Titus was at the heart of the law controversy in the early days of the church, and he seems to have been a man that was strong in the faith, able to handle problems, and I think minister effectively. We're told that Titus ministered in Crete, where Paul left him to organize the churches there. And in chapter 1 of Titus, we find Titus had the responsibility of establishing elders in the church at Crete, since they were essential to operating the church effectively. So Paul reminded Titus that men must be well qualified to handle this important task of guiding the local church. A list similar to what was included in 1 Timothy 3 is also given here in Titus one of the major responsibilities um, of leadership is to guard the flock from those who would hurt it through false teaching. And so Titus was encouraged to deal actively with such individuals. Now in chapter 2, the apostle next reminded Titus and the Cretan Christians what constitutes proper behavior for various groups in the church. And to establish order in the church, Paul gave Titus instructions concerning the behavior of these various groups and what was appropriate for them. He stressed the importance of building up the inner life as the best antidote against error. 
Now, in chapter 3, Paul broadened the focus of his instructions to clarify the responsibilities of all Christians in view of God's grace. Believers are told uh, not to speak reproachfully of unbelievers or to be quarrelsome with them. Believers need to be reminded that they once behaved like these people in their past. They've been changed by Christ, cleansed and regenerated by the Spirit. Christ has made the difference in them. Paul ends the letter with a series of brief instructions. He tells Titus to remove divisive people from the assembly after they have had two warnings. He encourages believers to be diligent in doing good deeds. Also, Titus is told that someone will be coming to Crete to replace him. Now, next is the small book of Philemon. And Paul writes this personal letter to his friend Philemon in order to intercede for the slave Onesimus. And Onesimus apparently had stolen from his master Philemon and then fled to Rome. And at Rome, he was converted under the Apostle Paul's ministry and was now returning to his master. And so Paul writes as a mediator for this slave. Now, whether Philemon will receive his slave back depends a great deal on the character of this man. And Paul's confidence that he will receive Onesimus back is based on Philemon's godly character. Something of it is revealed in these verses. His generosity, his love and faith are well known, and Paul thanks the Lord for that. The heart of Paul's request is that Philemon would receive Onesimus just as he would receive Paul if he were to come. That's in verse 17. Paul's aware that the benefit, um, or excuse me, Paul's aware that theft had been involved and that Philemon had lost financially because of this slave. But Paul said that Philemon should charge that to Paul's account and he would repay it. It's a beautiful illustration here of imputation. Paul signs the letter with his own hand and it guarantees that he will repay it. Then he reminds Philemon of a parallel situation, which is of far greater weight. Philemon once had been burdened with a great spiritual debt, and that was entirely paid by Jesus in his redemptive death. Now, the last book for this week is Hebrews. And Hebrews can be a very difficult book. Uh, However, if you understand that the point of Hebrews is to demonstrate how Jesus is so much better, I believe it makes it much easier to understand. He is superior to everything. Um, Hebrews is heavy with doctrine in the first 10 chapters, but then the last three chapters apply that doctrine, so it's beneficial for our daily living. So from chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 18, the author of Hebrews demonstrates four ways in which Christ is superior. So in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Christ is a better revelation. Now through the eyes of many prophets, we get a certain level of revelation about God. But through God's Son, Jesus Christ, we get the perfect and complete level of revelation of God. The readers would have understood that God's word spoken through the Son was an extension of the Old Testament history. So if you want to really understand the Son, you need to see how God revealed His Son through history. This is why studying the Old Testament is vitally important. A second way Christ is superior is that He is better than the angels. Now the angels were mediators of the Old Covenant, as we're told on Mount Sinai. But now Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. So that means in verses 5 through 12 of chapter 1, the author shows how Christ is superior to angels in seven different ways, each way being evidenced by an Old Testament passage. This section concludes with verse 14, a classic reference in our understanding of the nature and purpose of angels. Angels stand and serve, but none was ever invited to sit before God, much less at the right hand of power. Only the Son was afforded that privilege. So the Son is so much better than the angels because of these Old Testament proofs, but the Son is also so much better than angels because of his humanity. So in chapter 2, verses 5 to 18, we're given seven reasons why Christ had to become a man, why that's important. This passage is one of the most significant ones on the incarnation of Christ, that is, why he became a man. Some of these original readers in Hebrews were tempted to abandon their faith because of Jesus' humanness. However, the author of Hebrews boldly states that Jesus' humanity makes him superior, not inferior. 
Now, a third way that Christ is superior is that he is better than Moses. And this discussion starts in chapter 3 and goes through chapter 4, verse 3. And it's vital for us to understand that the author of Hebrews was not discounting Moses' ministry. That would be deadly for his argument. The author wants to demonstrate how that Jesus, like Moses, was also faithful to God despite everything that came against him. However, despite all that Moses did, Christ still was far superior because of his position as son. You see, Moses was a steward for the household of Israel's Israel, but Christ is the son of that household. His position is far better than Moses. Now, the rest of this section, chapter uh, 3, verse 7 through chapter 4, verse 13, the author highlights the unbelief of the Israelites. It's designed to make a comparison between the faithfulness of Christ and Moses and the faithlessness of the Israelites. Now, a fourth way that Christ is superior is that he is superior to Aaron. But more specifically, Christ is better than the whole of the Old Testament priesthood. And this section is rather large. It encompasses chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 10, verse 18. That's a lot of chapters. But realize that Jesus as our high priest is the most distinctive theme of Hebrews, and it's part of the central argument of this book. And that's why it's included here. This section is further subdivided into five smaller sections, all showing how Christ is better. So the first section, chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, shows that Christ holds a better position. You see, during the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, the high priest was permitted behind the veil just once a year to atone for the sins of the people. By contrast, our high priest, Jesus, has gone right through the veil and into heaven itself, where he is now enthroned and making intercession for us. Clearly, Christ holds a better position. The second section, which is in chapters 5, 6, and 7, it shows that Christ is a better priest. You know, Christ has all the qualifications necessary to be a better priest, but before talking about why he is a better priest, a warning is inserted in the flow of these chapters. That warning is specifically in chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 20. And it's a warning about the dangers involved in immaturity. Readers have become sluggish and lazy and were not growing in their faith. And this is very important because if they are not growing, then understanding why Christ is a better priest is going to be rather difficult for them to comprehend. Nonetheless, he encourages them to continue growing as he moves into chapter 7 with a discussion about Melchizedek. Now here's the basic argument about Melchizedek. The priesthood of the Old Testament rested on the Mosaic Covenant, which was temporal and conditional. But Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi, which was required for a priest of Aram. He was from the tribe of Judah. Christ was in the priesthood of Melchizedek, which was far superior of a priesthood than the priesthood of Aaron. And that's the contrast here. Not only is Christ a better priest, but he also mediated a better covenant. And that's the third section, which is chapter 8. In Old Testament Israel, the priests functioned as mediators of the covenant by taking offerings and sacrifices to the Lord at the tabernacle. But Jesus is a much better mediator than the Old Testament priests because the covenant that Jesus mediates is built upon better promises, promises that are permanent, not temporary. You see, the Old Testament Levitical system was never designed to fix the sin problem. It was rather anticipatory of the new covenant, which is more fully explained in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 8. Now, not only is Christ a mediator of a better covenant, he also mediates a better sanctuary. That's the fourth section in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. And this chapter explains to us that there were limitations and obstacles that prevented direct access to God. This was the design of that Old Testament system. There was a right way to approach God and a wrong way. However, now through Christ, direct access to God has been restored. We no longer have to go through a priest, but we have access directly to God because of Christ's sacrifice. Now that brings us to the fifth and final section of this larger section, 
which is chapter 9, verse 11 through chapter 10, verse 18. And this last section demonstrates that Christ has provided a better sacrifice. The sacrifice itself was better because it was the sinless Son of God. Now, notice verse 14 of chapter 9. It's important because all three parts of the Trinity show up concerning the sacrifice of Christ. Listen to what the last part of the verse says. For by the power of the eternal Spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Now, friends, if Christ needed the Holy Spirit to accomplish his perfect life and sacrifice on the cross, then how much more do we need the Holy Spirit in our lives to help us thrive? The Old Testament was inaugurated with blood, just like the New Covenant was inaugurated with the blood of Christ. In the New Covenant, the animal substitutes are replaced with the perfect sacrificial lamb of God. Christ did not enter the earthly tabernacle. He entered the presence of God. He made his offering once rather than repeatedly. He put away sins forever rather than covering them only temporary. And because Jesus died for our sins, we don't need to fear death. Furthermore, as you move into chapter 10, God could not find any lasting pleasure excuse me, or satisfaction in something that was sacrificed contrary to its will, a sacrifice that was forced or coerced. Jesus was not forced or coerced into sacrificing himself for us. The point here is that Christ's voluntary sacrifice terminated involuntary sacrifices. He willingly sacrificed himself, knowing full well that the form he took on, human form, in order to be our sacrifice, was going to be permanent. This implies that Christ forever wants to be associated with and minister to those for whom he died. And I think this adds another dimension to our understanding of Christ, especially at Christmas time when we reflect on Jesus becoming a man. He had to become a man, to die as a man, to rise again as a man, to give us hope of a future resurrection as men and women. And he couldn't have done that or or, or accomplished that if he himself did not become a man, knowing full well that he would be forever stuck, I guess we might say, in that fashion as a man. But he loved us so much that he did all of that for us. Now, Christ has a superior revelation. He is superior to the angels. He is superior to Moses. And he is superior to the entirety of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Wow. Now, in light of all this, he is superior to all things. We should stay faithful to Christ and persevere in this life. Yet, these Hebrew Christians were thinking of leaving Christ and going back to the old system, going back to the old ways. They were afraid. They were being persecuted. They were being ostracized for their faith. But friends, look at all of what Christ has done for us. He is so much better, so much better. Why would we ever want to leave what Christ gives to us and go back into the old system? And so the rest of the book of Hebrews, the final portion, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through chapter 13, verse 25, of what we'll talk about next week, talks about that. Because of what Christ has done for us, therefore, we need to respond correctly to it. And we'll talk about responding correctly to what Christ has done for us next week. So that's all the time we have for this week. Email any questions to BibleReading at LMBC.org, and I will talk with you all next time.